Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, those are some interesting uh, earrings you have on there. Oh, why, thank you. Can you describe uh, those? Ouroboros earrings. They are... The Ouroboros snake, and it's actually curling and biting its tail in its mouth. Well, that's ah. the illusion, actually, when it's in my ear. Ah, yes, the Ouroboros. You know, we recently did that episode on symbols, and we talked a little bit about powerful symbols, ancient mm-hmm. symbols, symbols that uh, just resonate with meaning and continue to do so just across thousands and thousands of years of human history. And the Ouroboros is a fantastic example of this. Uh, Sometimes it's depicted as a, more of a snake. Sometimes it's more of a dragon or a lizard-looking creature. And it is always biting its own tail and or consuming its own tail. So the tail is going in the mouth, and it instantly, even if you're not familiar with any of the, the, the historic interpretations of the Ouroboros, it instantly draws certain ideas to the forefront. The idea of, uh, on a very just simple level, like, the consumption of oneself, auto-cannibalism, but also the idea that what is, what's going to happen? What is happening with the serpent eating its own tail? How long can it can maintain this, this uh, self-devouring uh, movement before it can't eat itself anymore? Does it get to the point where it just blinks out into nothing? Or is this a continuing cycle? Is it not only eating itself but emerging from itself? Uh, okay, so it's that whole idea of like uh, you're either descending into nothingness or you're coming from nothingness. Yeah. So I wanted to point out that rat snakes, along with some other species of snakes, have been known to swallow their tails mm-hmm. um, in an act of, as you say, auto-cannibalism, um, although this is seen primarily in captivity when they're yeah. in cages that Zucosis. are small. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it is something that exists in nature, but largely the Arabaris has, as you say, come to symbolize this idea of rebirth, uh, infinity, and this continuity, this this wheel of cycles that you've actually talked about before in terms of samsara. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, essentially it's a it's a cosmic serpent, and there are a lot of cosmic serpents and world serpents in mythology. I mean, ranging from uh, the Leviathan that's mentioned in the the Old Testament uh, comes up in the Book of Job, or uh, the Orgamander, the uh, the giant. Uh, uh, bestial serpent that uh, plays a role in Ragnarok and the end of the world. And the Ouroboros resonates with these ideas of self-consumption. It's uh, continuing to emerge, and uh, you might even uh, draw that if this process is disturbed, it might well mean the end of time. Uh, So it's a circle of eternity. It takes our linear existence and turns it on its head, turns it into this cyclical form that uh, at, at once makes more sense in that it ties back to our cyclical understanding of life, but also is kind of mind-blowing in and of itself, because, you, again, you try to, to figure out how, do, how would this work in, the, in real life. It's kind of like an Escher painting, like the oldest possible Escher painting. As I said, the Ouroboros dates back to ancient times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pretty much the earliest one that we've ever encountered uh, comes, be- comes from Egypt, uh, from the enig- what we refer to as the Enigmatic Book of the Netherworld. Uh, that's just a name we came up for it. We have, uh, it's engraved. Not you and I, we. Not you but, and I, but we as modern yeah. humans or relatively modern, modern humans. Uh, it was found, found engraved in a shrine of uh, Tutankhamun. Uh, and uh, in it we see a figure named He Who Rides the Hours, uh, and both the head and the feet of this figure surrounded by an Ouroboros serpent. Uh, and, uh, that is designated as uh, Mihin, the enveloper. And that stems from about uh, the 14th century BCE. 
But elsewhere in China and the Near East, we see examples of it uh, in the Neolithic Yangshao culture that thrived in the Yellow River between 5,000 and 3,000 BCE. And so it just continues to carry on from there. There's uh, some scholars that believe that there's a link between the uh, the yin yang uh, symbol of the mm-hmm. opposing forces uh, swirling together, classic uh, Asian symbol. That there's a connection between that and the Ouroboros. Uh, you see uh, later on the Gnostics uh, looked at it as uh, the soul of the world. The alchemists prized it. Uh, it ends up interpreted in other mythologies as well, in some uh, South American traditions as well as in uh, uh, some of the ancient Mapamundis that we were talking about in our. Uh, Sea Monsters episode, you see the great tail devouring serpent as a beast that encircles the known world or the known oceans. It becomes uh, something that represents the limits of our geographical understanding and perhaps our cosmic understanding as well. Yeah, that's interesting because in Norse mythology, uh, it comes to represent this idea of the circumference of the world here, yeah. right? And I wanted to mention that there's this really starkly beautiful hand-drawn Ouroboros that dates back from uh, or back to ancient Egypt, and it has the writing "All is One" inscribed in the middle, which kind of speaks a bit to Zen Buddhism. Um, so, yeah, you have all these different ancient civilizations embracing this symbol. And I thought that's really powerful and cool. And, and actually, if you look at even someone like the German chemist August Kekel, who dreamed of a snake that mm. seized a tail in its own mouth, that was inspiration for him figuring out that benzene had a ring-like molecular structure. So it's definitely ingrained in our conscious. And I think it's interesting that it may even relate to the yin-yang. Yeah, now and speaking of consciousness, uh, Carl Jung had this to say about it. Oh, he I said, bet he did. Yeah, he's, he's, he was re- talking about the alchemist's uh, fondness for the Ouroboros. And he says, the alchemist who in their own way knew more more about the nature of the individualization process than we moderns do express this paradox of the symbol of the Ouroboros, the snake that eats its own tail. The Ouroboros has been said to have a meaning of infinity or wholeness. In the age-old image of the Ouroboros lies the thought of devouring oneself and turning oneself into a circulatory process, for it was clear to the more astute alchemists that the prima materia of the art was man himself. The Ouroboros is a dramatic symbol for the integration and assimilation of the opposite, of the shadow. This feedback process is at the same time a symbol of immortality, since it is said of the Ouroboros that he slays himself and brings himself to life, fertilizes himself, and gives birth to himself. He symbolizes the one who proceeds from the clash of opposites, and he therefore constitutes the secret of the prima materia, which unquestionably stems from man's consciousness. Now, of course, I can't help to wonder if the Matrix ever really worked the Ouroboros into its plot lines. It should have if it hadn't, because it's got yeah. the whole the one thing going on. I was kind of tuning out a little bit in the third one, but it seems like that's where it would have shown up. Um, <laughs> well, okay, so maybe maybe the Matrix didn't uh, take hold of that imagery. But, you know, as we said, this did get kind of buried into people's consciousness. And then, of course, you have, or subconscious, you have people taking on the Arbaris in a folktale-like fashion and sort of incorporating it into the Boogeyman, which is interesting. Ah, you're talking about hoop snakes, I believe. Um Yes. Now, this is this is a creature that stems from lumberjack folklore of Wisconsin and Minnesota during the 19th and early 20th century. The uh, they're often generally just referred to in general as the fearsome critters, and I really believe this is an an, an underappreciated area of uh, of monsters. Uh, probably because I mean, part of it is that on one hand, these monsters were used to sort of describe weird noises that you'd encounter in a lonely landscape, mm-hmm. but they were also used to lighten the mood around camp. So they were they were silly, they were exaggerated, they were fun. And so uh, the, the example of the hoop snake is here you have a highly colored snake. 
and uh, extremely poisonous and aggressive, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, like any monster should be. And it moves by taking its tail in its mouth and then jumping up and rolling like a hoop at high speeds. So, again, it's, it's, uh, it's a predator. It'll definitely come after a human, a lumberjack. So Specifically, starts, a lumberjack. So. Yeah, because they're the ones out there. When you're they're, wearing those check shirts, you're, you're yeah. toast. Yeah, they, they see you, and you're making all that noise with that axe. And so the hoop snake's running at you. What are you going to do? What's your defense? This thing's just barreling towards you. You know, it's just poisonous as all get out. My axe, You've got of course. One, nope, axe isn't going to work. You've what? got one move. One move. What do you do? Uh, well, oh, I jump through it. Yes, you dive through the center of the hoop. <laughs> and then, A, this confuses the hoop snake. And uh-huh. then, B, the, these, the hoop snake cannot stop. It just keeps on rolling. So that's how the lumberjacks supposedly survive the uh, the motions of the hoop snake. Yeah, I, I love it because I love this idea that you have a snake taking its tail into its mouth and all of a sudden becoming, you know, mobile and just rolling after someone and then trying to sting someone with its tail. Yes. So uh, it's, a, it's great imagery. But while the hoop, or also called the mud snake, cannot sting with its tail, it does have a hard spine back uh, that could draw blood when it, it thrashes vigorously. So some, so, so some of this is observing snakes and the way they lay around and, and, and may appear to have a hoop-like form. And, uh, and thinking, hey, well, you know, what if that thing were to take its tail in its mouth, uh, like this sort of image that's ingrained in my psyche, and uh, it were to roll around like a, like a hoop toy? Well, and in fact, that actually does happen, although not with snakes, right? Yes. The, the amazing thing about this is that uh, there are creatures that are, uh, you know, serpentine in form, essentially, that do roll up. And certainly a, a lot of creatures roll up. I mean, humans, when, when we get in our, our fetal position, uh, for a little, uh, you know, lonely sleep or something, uh, or our, you know, cats sleeping on the couch, whatever. A lot of creatures roll up into a form, but they don't roll across the ground in that curled uh, form. But you do see that in at least a couple usually. of different critters. Usually, but you do see this activity in a couple of different critters. First of all, the Mount Lyell salamander, and uh, like a lot of salamanders, it curls up, uh, but it also uses this as a no-nonsense defense measure. Uh, it makes its home on the steep slopes of California's uh, Sierra Nevada mountains. And what does this sucker do if something threatens it? Well, it curls up, rolls away. Or if it needs to get down that steep terrain really quickly, what's the best way to do it? Roll up. Roll up, yeah. And just then you're going down the hill. Yeah, because then all of your like uh, internal organs are all protected, too. Because, you know, not only from a predator, but if you're going down rocky terrain and you're bumping along the way, it makes sense that you would... You know, decrease the friction on your body mm-hmm. and increase locomotion as you're going down. Yeah, and its body's kind of rubbery too, so it absorbs the impact of the bounces. It's not like if you or I would roll up in a ball and, and head off down a steep slope, it would break us. No, but, but if we put a little salamander suit on. Yeah, well, maybe then. And See, then we curled. I wonder if there's ever been a superhero that does this, has like a salamander suit, and they kind of do, they're going to roll kind of like Metroid, I guess, when they need a barrel over some uh, enemies or get away from them. I like this, like Sally the Salamander superhero. Yeah. Yeah. Or, by the way, it could be a great transhuman feature. Yes. Right? Because I wouldn't mind that, honestly. I could roll down some hills. Yes. And there, you know, and the, the cool thing about this is it's not just this one uh, salamander that does it. There's also the pearl moth caterpillar. And this one does a similar thing. If it meets a predator, it anchors its rear to the ground, recoils rapidly, and then rolls away backward like a tire, mouth to tail. 
Oh, no, it gets even better than this. It's like very Cirque du Soleil is that when it rears up and mm-hmm. it curls into that wheel, it does a, it's kind of springs backward. Yeah, so it's a backflip into a, like an inverted tire form and then it rolls away. Yeah, and it's bright green and so it's sort of like beautiful and, and then there's a bunch of music playing in the background of multicultural instruments. Yeah, so, so these are both creatures, great examples of hoop snake-like abilities in actual animals. Yeah, and the cool thing about that caterpillar is that it moves some 40 times faster than its normal pace, Mm -hmm. and it goes from flat and stationary to rolling in about 60 milliseconds. I mean, that's an insane short amount of time there. In fact, um, this has inspired AI designers to look at this particular bit of biomimicry in robotics for that very reason. All right, so so we've talked about the the wheeling around... Mm -hmm curling up, but I don't hear any tail biting. Well, for tail biting, we need to go to the armadillo-girdled lizard, which was formerly known uh, as... Um, Prince. No. It was formerly known as Cordylus uh, cataphractus, but now is Ouroboros cataphractus. So it's actually named for the world-consuming serpent because this uh, particular South African lizard, and it's a small little guy, uh, six and a half to eight and a half inches or 16 to 21 centimeters in length. And when threatened, they curl up, they bite the tip of their tail, and sort of hold themselves there. Uh, so when they're doing this, they're curling up. They're, they're very spiny. They have all these spiny mm-hmm. scales. So when they curl up in the ball like that, they're, they're covering their uh, vulnerable bellies. Yeah, I was thinking about how their names are so descriptive, the girdled lizard, the armadillo girdled yeah. lizard, because it really does look like these rows, this girdling mm-hmm. of plates that are fringed with those spiky points. And so, as you say, when it curls up, then it's just, it, you, you don't even want to touch it. You don't even try to get to its soft underbelly. Yeah, and they look absolutely adorable. Uh, if you do a Google image search on these guys, or if you do a, a YouTube search, you'll probably find find a clip from a, uh, one of Attenborough's BBC shows yeah. where he's uh, going up and plucking one out of the rocks and holding it up because they'll they'll bite their little tails and they look like just a, an adorable, like beautiful sculpted Ouroboros, and they'll remain that way for some time because they're threatened. So they're they're like, well, I'm not taking any chances. I'm just going to stay here biting my own tail, uh, holding myself in place in this defensive posture until I know everything's clear. You know, in terms of design, I was thinking that they look like something Cleopatra would have worn. Yeah. And she would have said, bring me one of those lizards (laughs) to wrap around my wrists. And apparently they're a popular pet as well for some people. Now, uh, of course, it's important to note that they, while they are biting their own tail, they are not eating their own tail. Uh, we mentioned some examples of certainly uh, zoocosis uh, situations where an, an animal that is disturbed in, in some way, shape, or form will start chewing on its tail. Mm-hmm. There, there are also tales of mammals and, and uh, other creatures that bite on their own tail or, or eat part of their own tail, and it's generally just a, a sad case. But there, uh, there, there are situations where eating your own tail is just perfectly okay and perfectly economical. I'm talking about, for instance, the leopard gecko, which uh, is uh, one of uh, one of many, um, which is one of many lizards that can detach its own tail as a protective measure. You know the deal. They're threatened. They jettison the tail. The tail flops around in spasms, and then they run off. Uh, it's uh, on one level, it's like leaving a decoy behind to distract a predator, but also it's kind of a bribe, saying. Look, you're not going to eat me, but I'm going to leave this delicious tail. And in fact, the the tails tend to have a lot of resources in them. Uh, so you know, it's a it's a nice fatty uh, piece of meat. Mm-hmm. So what happens if uh, the gecko gets away uh, and then comes back and finds that the predator that threatened it, or 
what it thought was a predator that threatened it did not eat that tail portion? Well, I mean, that could be dinner, right? Yeah. I mean, it, why waste it? It's just pure economy. You know, if you accidentally dropped 20 bucks out of your wallet and then you walked away and you came back and nobody else had found it, you'd put that up, back up and put it back in your wallet. And, and the gecko does the same thing. It's like, well, if you're not going to eat that piece of me that I dropped to bribe you, then I'm going to eat it myself and take those uh, important nutrients and all that important energy back into myself. Which is the basis of the Arboris idea, right? Yeah. It's life-sustaining. It's giving up and sustaining itself in one uh, fluid movement. So, that's uh, and again, it's a happier uh, vision of animals eating themselves. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we will talk about a storm Ouroboros on Saturn. All right, we're back, and we are going to talk about the storm that bit its own tail. This is is so exciting to me. Yes, this is pretty uh, crazy. So, first of all, let's talk about storms here on Earth, particularly uh, hurricanes, Okay. On Earth, a hurricane feeds off the energy of warm water, okay? Mm-hmm. And it leaves a cold water wake, and it just grows more and more and more powerful. We all know the deal. We watch them move in, uh, watching the Weather Channel and whatnot. And uh, they grow more and more powerful, and then they hit land. When they hit land, there's a lot of destruction, but then they lose their energy. Yeah, because mountains, well, they, they sort of occlude them, right? And their energy dissipates. Yeah, they can't, they can't feed off of the land. They need to feed off of the warm water. But Saturn, this massive planet that doesn't have these landforms that could impede storms, yeah, what it's just happens? Yeah, all atmospheric disturbance. It, it, it's glorious. Yeah. Yeah, and in this case, what you, what you had happen, and this, uh, this could, back in 2010, this was first, well, it was first detected December 5th, 2010, tracked by Cassini's um, radio and plasma wave subsystem and imaging cameras, and a storm, massive storm erupts around uh, 30 degrees north latitude, and it begins to move. And eventually, within months, the storm wraps around the entire planet, stretching about 190,000 miles or 300,000 kilometers in circumference, uh, thundering, throwing lightning, just going crazy, just a, a type of storm, of the intensity of which we can, we can scarcely imagine here on Earth. And it goes all the way around the planet and reaches its beginning, reaches its tail. Yeah, because shortly after that, that bright, turbulent head of the storm emerged, this is according to fizz.org, and started moving west, it spawned a clockwise spinning vortex that drifted slowly. So you're talking about seven months, as you say, mm-hmm. covering that 190,000 miles or 300,000 kilometers in circumference this massive storm head meeting itself. And what happens when it meets itself? Well, like an Ouroboros, it sort of disappears into itself. And it's a, it's a huge mystery to scientists because we're not quite sure why the storm mm-hmm. would behave that way. Yeah. But it's crazy. You can look up uh, images of this on, online, and it's just it's you know intense storm yeah, it's circling thrashed, the entire planet. It thrashed for 201 days. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is amazing to me. Its updraft erupted with an intensity that would have sucked out the entire volume of Earth's atmosphere in 150 days. Wow. That is how massive. That is a leviathan. It is. Sure. That's a great word for it. Uh, but to be fair, I mean, Saturn is 83 times larger than Earth, so we're talking about different stats here. Yeah, and it's just an entirely different... Uh, kettle of fish when it comes to the uh, atmospheric disturbances that can occur there, as is uh, typified by on Jupiter, the, the great red storm that, of course, looks like a giant red eye. That's that's a, a, an intensity of, of storm that, again, is just not even possible on Earth and scarcely uh, can even be imagined by us. I know. I, I think I smell an episode of Bruin here. Yeah, there. yeah. 
All right. So what other type of Arabaris do we have outside of nature? Uh, we have something called a nano Arabaris. And chemists at the Scripps Research Institute in California, they created this nano tool, uh, which is an R-brand molecular switch that looks like an Arabaris. Its molecular tail coils up and around it, it's sort of like right up to its cup-like head. And the molecule is used to detect metals, toxins, and other pollutants in our environment. It's really cool because its default position is the Arborus mm-hmm. position. Uh, but when it encounters a metal ion, its middle section bends around that ion, and then that springs it open. So it's a good way to figure out whether or not um, there are metallic impurities present, or if you've remediated an area of pollutants, it's a good way to go back and see if it's actually been completely removed from, from that soil. Mm-hmm. And Ben Coxworth, writing for Gizmag, uh, made the, I thought, very astute observation that the Arboros, which is, as we had pointed out earlier, associated with alchemy, has kind of come full circle ah. uh, with its ability to perhaps detect gold. Yeah, and because what is nanotechnology if not some form of, of alchemy, you know? That's right. Yeah. So now do we, are we going to see people combing the beaches with these instead of the little metal detectors? Yeah, they'll just unleash a little uh, cup of Ouroboros system and go out searching mm-hmm. for gold. Um, you know, uh, two other things here about the Ouroboros. One, uh, I was reminded by, uh, by Jung's quote. He mentions uh, feedback. Uh, when you think of a feedback loop, a feedback mm-hmm. loop is, is sort of a, an Ouroboros in its way, in yeah. its own sense. You know, it's like sound leaves the speaker, goes back through the microphone into the same system, and it just gets louder and louder and becomes that awful whining. I've also uh, read some theories regarding wormholes, cosmic wormholes, right. that a cosmic wormhole would, uh, cre- would create a feedback loop and then it would destroy itself in the process. And, uh, Much like our storm Ouroboros. Exactly. And uh, and then there's a, another really cool thing uh, that links Ouroboros and science a little bit uh, here, possibly. And for, for this, I want you to want you to think about this. All right, a glowing world serpent that encompasses the Earth. Okay. Where where might ancient man see something that uh, that summons this idea? Especially if you were to travel north or south. Oh, I don't know, Robert Lamb. Lay it on me. Aurora Borealis. Oh, uh, you know, uh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. I was reading a paper titled The Ouroboros as an Auroral Phenomenon, and it argues that uh, considering the antiquity of the theme and its near universality, its uh, geographic link with the outmost boundaries of the world, descriptions of glowing and radiation, they uh, the authors argue that it might just have its origins in the human observation of intense auroral phenomena, including a plasma instability type known as Diocotton instability witnessed by humans towards the end of the Neolithic period. So, uh, so you think that would further reinforce what they saw on on their terrestrial world, which is you know perhaps a snake biting its own tail and then looking yeah. up at the sky That's and the seeing idea. this illuminated snake in front of them. Yeah, I don't know if I I completely. I mean, it's a, they make a really nice argument for it in the paper. I don't know if I buy it one hundred percent because it seems like an idea that is so universal that it. It may stem from several different sources, you know. All right, so there you have it. The Ouroboros, the hoop snake. Some real-world and uh, real-off-world examples of, uh, of how this actually occurs how and how we may have thought it up to begin with. As always, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. What do you think? What do you think of the Ouroboros? What is your attachment to the Ouroboros? What do you think when you look at this symbol? Do you have it tattooed on your body? I know it's a pretty popular uh, symbol out there, and there are a number of different uh, artistic interpretations of it that are pretty amazing. 
let us know. You can find us in all the usual places. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all that. But uh, the, the big place is StuffToBlowYourMind.com. There you'll find all of our blogs, our videos, our audio podcasts. You'll find uh, links to all these social media things I discussed earlier. And how else can they get in touch with us? Oh, well, they can send us an email at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 